If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Episode 6 of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. I hope you're doing well. The weather's improving and the days are getting longer, so hopefully that's helping you deal with self-quarantining. I'm really excited about today's episode. As usual, we'll start with the news around Europe, Serie A, and around Napoli. Then in part two, I'm going to do a combined player profile and transfer talk on goalkeeper Alex Meret. And in part three, we're going to review another classic Napoli match. Now, I was tempted to review the 89-90 Scudetto win since this past Tuesday was the 30th anniversary of that match, but we've already reviewed two matches from the glory days of the late 80s, so I wanted to mix it up a little. Instead, we're going to look at the 2014 Coppa Italia final, which was won exactly six years ago. So let's start with the news. In case you haven't heard, not long after the French government suspended all sports till September, Ligue 1 decided to end the 2019-2020 campaign and to award the title to PSG. Now France was the third European country to end their domestic season after Belgium and Netherlands. Unlike the Eredivisie, Ligue 1 used average points per game to determine the final standings, which then dictates who will play in the Champions League, who will play in the Europa League, and who will be relegated. And as a result, PSG and Marseille will enter the group stage of the Champions League, while Rennes will play in the qualification round. Lille, Rheims, and Nice will play in the Europa League. Now, Lyon will not play in a European competition for the first time since the 1996-97 campaign, and so the club has threatened legal action against the league, potentially seeking tens of millions of dollars in lost revenue. Now, Lyon were on 40 points, one point back of Nice and Rheims, But as our club president Jean-Michel Olas has pointed out, Lyon has played fewer home matches. So they've only played 13 home matches, while Nice has played 15 and Rheim has played 14. 
and Olas has also pointed out that Lyon already played PSG twice, while Nice has only played them once, so I suppose you can argue that Lyon got the short end of the stick, but there's really no solution that works for everyone. And if you're going to speculate, then you can also consider Strasbourg, who are three points back of Nice, but they have a game in hand, and they too have only played 13 home matches. Toulouse, who will be relegated, is going to appeal that decision as well. That one seems like a bit of a stretch to me, because Toulouse are 14 points back of safety. I personally do not expect anything to come of these threats or appeals, but like we saw with the DVZ, deciding to end the season can have some messy consequences. So in episode 4, we looked at what would happen if we applied the same criteria the Eredivisie Divisi used to Serie A to see how the Serie A table would look. So let's do the same now using Ligue 1's methodology. Juventus, Lazio, Inter, and Atalanta would play in the Champions League. Roma and Napoli would play in the Europa League. So the top six teams are exactly the same. Since there would be no Coppa Italia winner, a third team would qualify for the Europa League. And that would be a different club. So if you recall, the Eredivisie effectively handed out losses for games in hand. So with the Dutch methodology, Milan would have qualified for the Europa League. But when you use average points per game, Milan would actually drop to ninth in the table. And Hellas Verona would qualify for the Europa League. So now we have two different options on how to end the season, should it get to that point. And I don't really count Belgium because they were pretty much done anyways. Elsewhere in Europe, the German Bundesliga seems set to resume after their Minister of Sport, Horst Seehofer, told the newspaper Bild that he supports a return to play in May. On to Serie A, the Italian government has given clubs the green light to open their training facilities on May 4th. This announcement came shortly after the regions of Emilia-Romagna, Sardinia, and Campania approved their club's return to training. Unfortunately, we had to wait until May 3rd for this announcement after all the back and forth and politicking between the FIGC and the Italian government. So even though the clubs have been approved to return to their training facilities, while still social distancing of course, very few if any can actually return on May 4th because now the testing process will begin. So most clubs are expected to return to training over the course of this week. Brescia, Parma, Spal, and Udinese have elected to wait for the safety protocol to be published before they resume training. And any players that have been living abroad will have to self-quarantine for 14 days before they can rejoin their clubs. Juventus has a few key players that left Italy, including Cristiano Ronaldo, Matias Delite, and Blaise Matuidi. However, I don't think that puts them at a disadvantage, really. I'm sure they will be provided individual training programs to do at home. These players will be group training on May 18th, just like everyone else. As for the protocol, two issues remain to be resolved, which are what to do if a player contracts the virus. The last we heard was that the league wanted to isolate the individual and only allow them to return to the squad after a double negative test, while the government wants anyone who has come in contact with that person to quarantine for two weeks. The other issue has to do with players' health insurance. Also, the FIGC will meet with the government's technical and scientific committee to work on two additional protocol one for the resumption of group training and another for the resumption of actual gameplay, which at the moment is scheduled for the second or third week of June. Moving on to Napoli news, as expected, Gennaro Gattuso has not exercised his early termination clause, so now the club has until June 8th to exercise their termination right, and if they don't, Gattuso will remain with the club for another year. Lastly, Giuseppe Pecoraro, who was the head attorney of the FIGC from 2016 to the end of 2019, spoke to Il Mattino about the second match between Juventus and Inter in the 2017-2018 campaign, 
And for those who don't remember, Juventus came from behind to win that match 3-2 after an Inter own goal in the 87th minute and an Iguain winner in the 89th minute, but the match was very controversial. First with Juventus already up 1-0, Matias Vecino had his yellow card in the 18th minute replaced with a red after VAR reviewed his tackle on Mario Mandzukic. Now Vecino seemed to step on Mandzukic after he passed the ball, but it's really hard to tell if it was just trying to block the pass or an attempt to injure the Croatian. So Inter played the rest of the match down a man. Then in the 27th minute, Miralam Pjanic, who was already on a yellow, was equally late with a challenge on Rafinha, but he did not receive a yellow from referee Daniele Orzato, nor does Orzato go to the VAR. Then in the 57th minute, which was only 5 minutes after Inter had equalized, Pjanic again fouls Rafinha, this time even more blatantly with a high knee crashing into Rafinha's chest, coming nowhere near the ball, and again Pjanic is not shown a second yellow. And on both of those challenges, by the way, Pjanic immediately apologizes to Rafinha, which is what players typically do when they know they're guilty and they're trying to avoid being carded. So had Pjanic been sent off, who knows how this match would have ended, but instead Juventus walked away with a 3-2 win. So back to the interview, Pecoraro explained that he requested the audio recordings for that match, which he did not receive until the start of the next championship, and I assume it was the Italian Referees Association that provides the audio. But worse than that, peculiarly, the file that he was provided contained everything except for the recording between Orzato and VAR on the second Pjanic foul on Rafinha, which sounds awfully suspicious. Now the reason I bring this up in the Napoli news portion of this segment is because that year Napoli went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Juventus all season long, and had Juventus lost that match, Napoli would have been only one point back with three games to go. Napoli and Juve would both win two and draw one of their final three matches, so maybe it wouldn't have made a difference, but we'll never know. Finally, Pecoraro also talked about Napoli's 1-0 loss to Inter the following season, in which Kaladu Koulibaly was shown a second yellow for dissent and subsequently suspended an additional match, even though he had been subjected to racist chants from the Inter supporters the entire match. Pecoraro said that the match should have been suspended, which is exactly what Carlo Ancelotti requested during the match, and that referee Paolo Mazzoleni's defense was that he didn't hear the chants, even though just about everyone else in the San Siro did, including the players on the pitch and Pecoraro's fieldside inspectors, who not only heard the chants but also reported the incident as well. So that'll do it for the news. In part two, we'll talk about Alex Meret. Today we're going to do both a player profile and a transfer talk on Napoli's young keeper Alex Meret. And as you'll see, this is really a story of resilience and determination. Meret began his football career with amateur club Donatello Calcio. At the age of 15, he would join the academy of his hometown club Udinese, which is the same academy that produced the legendary Italian keeper Dino Zoff. Meret worked his way through Udinese's youth system, moving from their U-17s to the U-19s before eventually joining the senior team. After spending nearly two full seasons backing up Orestes Karnatsis, 
making a grand total of zero appearances during that time. Udinese would then loan Meret to Serie B squad Spal, coached by Leonardo Semplici, for further development. Meret would get off to a rough start with his new club. The Italian started four of Spal's first five matches, posting a record of no wins, two losses, and two draws, and allowing a total of eight goals in those four matches. After sitting out the next four matches, he would seem to find his form, starting three of the next four matches, winning all three, and recording two clean sheets. But just as things were looking up, he would suffer a major setback. A broken wrist sidelined the young keeper for the next five weeks. But Meret would pick up right where he left off. He played in 23 of Spell's final 24 matches of the season, and in those 23 matches, Spell would play remarkably well, winning 13, drawing 7, and losing only 3 matches. During that stretch, Meret recorded 9 clean sheets, helping Spell to its second Serie B title in club history and its first promotion back to the top flight since being relegated in 1964. Meanwhile, Meret was also impressing on the international stage. In 2012, he joined the U16 Nazionale squad, working his way through the U17 and U18 squads before joining the U19 team, even though he was still only 17 and a half years old at the time. Meret made 19 appearances for the U19 squad, including playing in the U19 European Championships alongside Genoa's Andrea Favilli, Sassuolo's Manuel Locatelli, and Inter's Nicolo Barella. That squad finished runners-up to France, losing 4-0 in the final. Meret was also named to the team of the tournament alongside France's Kylian Mbappe. Unfortunately, injuries continued to slow Meret's progression. This time, muscular problems would force him to miss the first half of the 2017-2018 campaign. But just like the previous season, after recovering from his injury, Meret continued to deliver results, which says a lot about his mental fortitude. Meret made his Serie A debut on January 28, 2018, against a formidable Inter squad at the Stadio Paolo Mazza. Heading into the match, Spal were in 18th place, two points back of the safe zone, while Inter were in 4th place. Dai, vai con Perisic, buono, Brozzo, arriva al limite, la vede, e c'è ancora Meret, che a mani aperte toglie il pallone dall'incrocio. Those were four of the seven stops Meret would make, helping his newly promoted Spal squad to a 1-1 draw, which was a huge result. Meret had no chance on the one goal allowed, which was actually an own goal. Meret would play the next 12 matches before suffering yet another injury that would cause him to miss the final four matches of the season. In the 13 matches he did play, Meret helped Spal to record two wins, seven draws, and four losses, which was actually very impressive for a newly promoted squad. During that run, Meret also managed four clean sheets, including a nil-nil draw against Juventus on match day 29. This was enough to keep Spal in the fight for safety. Though Meret did not play in the final four matches of this season because of a shoulder injury, Spal managed to win three of those matches to earn themselves another season in the top flight. And though Meret only played in 13 matches, he did enough to impress the bigger clubs, including Napoli. After Meret's loan spell ended, Udinese would sell the 21-year-old to Napoli for 22 million euros. So what kind of keeper did Napoli acquire? Meret is an excellent positional keeper who often uses his balance and intelligent footwork to make difficult saves look easy. 
His excellent spatial awareness and timing, combined with his length and ability to read the trajectory of the ball, makes him very good at intercepting crosses. He's not afraid to attack the ball and he moves very efficiently inside the box. And despite his size, he has very quick reflexes. Finally, Medet is a technically sound goalkeeper. In short, he has everything it takes to be a world-class keeper. His one downfall, though, could be the injuries. Shortly after moving to Napoli, Medet sustained his fourth major injury in only three seasons. This time, he fractured his arm after colliding with Napoli youth player Francesco Mazzoni prior to the start of the 2018-2019 campaign. After having surgery to repair the fracture, Medet missed the first 14 matches of the season, but the resilient young keeper would not waver. The goalkeeping situation at Napoli that season was a bit of a timeshare between Medet, David Ospina, and Oretzis Carnetsis, who had also joined Napoli from Udinese on a loan deal with an obligation to buy. Ospina played 17 matches in Serie A in all of Napoli's Champions League matches, Medet played 14 matches in Serie A in all of Napoli's Europa League matches, and Carnetsis featured in 9 Serie A matches. Once again, when Medet did play, he looked very impressive. In his 14 Serie A matches, he won 10, drew 1, and lost 3, collecting 5 clean sheets in the process. Collectively, the three keepers helped Napoli to another second place finish in Serie A, well behind Juventus. And that brings us to the current season. Despite the club's struggles, Meret actually has decent numbers. In 21 appearances in all competitions, he has a record of 9 wins, 7 draws, and 5 losses, and he's picked up 6 clean sheets. He was especially impressive in the Champions League, where he shut out Liverpool 2-0 at the San Paolo and held them to a 1-1 draw at the Anfield. Secondo te questa squadra sente questi stimoli particolari in Champions perché il rendimento è davvero diverso, sembra un'altra squadra. Sì, come ho già detto una volta, magari inconsciamente in Champions ti porta a dare qualcosa di più in questa atmosfera contro questa squadra. Gli stimoli vengono, vengono da sé, dobbiamo cercare di trovarli anche in campionato perché dobbiamo recuperare terreno. In this interview after the 1-1 draw, Meret was asked why in this match Napoli looked like a completely different team. His response was that when you play in the Champions League, you are more motivated to play your best and that Napoli need to find the same motivation when they play in Serie A because they find themselves behind in the table at the moment. Potrebbe essere da Liverpool a Liverpool una parentesi che si è chiusa di un periodo in cui il gioco non è stato brillantissimo? Sì, anche oggi non è stato brillantissimo, però oggi è una partita totalmente diversa dalle altre. Sapevamo che era una partita completamente difensiva e dovevamo... Dobbiamo fare questo, dobbiamo migliorare sicuramente sulla fase, sulla fase di impostazione, sulla fase del gioco perché nell'ultimo mese abbiamo fatto un po' di fatica, abbiamo fatto un po' di fatica a creare occasioni da gol, però questo è lo stesso gruppo che cre creava tantissimo fino a, a poco tempo fa, quindi dobbiamo ritrovare fiducia e cercare di, di essere più pericolosi davanti, più cinici perché dobbiamo recuperare punti. Meretz was also asked if this match against Liverpool could be the end of Napoli's sluggish play. His response was yes. He noted that, though this was their best game, it's the same group of players. They just can't seem to find the rhythm or chemistry in Serie A, they're struggling to score and they're not playing as well defensively as they usually do, so they will use this match as an example for the future. Now the reason I played these clips is because if you don't know better, you might think you were listening to a seasoned veteran. You probably wouldn't have guessed that this was a 22-year-old who had just held a Liverpool squad, who were the defending champions in the Champions League, as well as running away with the EPL title at an early stage in the season to a draw. And I know a draw may not sound that impressive, so let me quantify the magnitude of that result. 
At that point in the season, Liverpool had a perfect record in 12 matches played at the Anfield. And, what we didn't know at the time, was that Liverpool would go on to win every other subsequent match at the Anfield except for the very last one, which was their Champions League loss to Atletico Madrid. But when you listen to Medet's responses in that interview, you know that this is a player who has a level of maturity, intelligence, and professionalism well beyond his years. In addition to those two Champions League matches, Meretz was also in goal for Napoli's 2-1 victory over Juventus, which was really the turning point of Napoli's season. Unfortunately, Meretz would not play many more matches after that. At that point, Gattuso had settled in as the new manager and began to execute his strategy, which included playing the ball out from the back, including from the goalkeeper. For this reason, Gattuso seemed to prefer Colombian goalkeeper David Ospina, who's naturally more skilled with his feet than Alex Meret. And that actually brings us to the transfer portion of this segment. So at the time, there was a lot of talk in the media about Meret's supposed displeasure with being the backup. Now, whether or not that's true, it would be completely understandable for a young keeper who's breaking out to be unhappy about not playing. Even before play was suspended, rumors began to circulate that Meret could potentially be sold. And with rumors also spreading that Milan could sell Gijo Donnarumma, the media connected the dots and speculated that Meret and Musso could be potential replacements for Donnarumma. Now, I personally do not expect Milan to sell Donnarumma. Corriere dello Sport are reporting that Milan will at the very least try to extend them for a year so he doesn't walk away for free. That makes a lot of sense to me because they're simply not going to get full value for him right now with the markets being impacted by COVID-19. But even if Milan did sell Donnarumma, I do not think Napoli will sell Meret. This keeper has way too much talent, and if you sold him now, you'd definitely get less than what he's actually worth. I know keepers can play for a while, but Ospina's 31 years old, so he probably only has a few more good years left in him. Meret has the potential to be Napoli's number one for many, many years. If the only thing that's keeping Meret from being the starter is his footwork, then it doesn't take much for Meret to reclaim the starting position. We already know he has excellent footwork in terms of positioning, so it's not a stretch to think he can improve his play with the ball, and he's in fact working on that already. Even Ospina's agent, Lucas Jaramillo, recently acknowledged in an interview with Deportes that Napoli has invested a lot in Meret. Finally, if the plan is to sell him, it makes sense to hold on to him for a few more years than sell him in his prime. So taken altogether, I do not expect Napoli to sell Meret. In fact, he may not be the number one for the balance of the current season, but I definitely expect him to return to the number one spot for the start of next season, whenever that might be. So that's it for part two. In part three, we'll review another classic Napoli match. at the top this week we're going to revisit Napoli's Coppa Italia or Tim Cup final against Fiorentina in 2014. Before I get to the match I'll quickly go over the club's run to the final. Napoli defeated Atalanta who are a mid-table club in the round of 16. Then they beat another mid-table team in Lazio in the quarterfinals. 
and in the semifinals, which was two legs, Napoli played Roma, who they were struggling to catch in Serie A in second place. After losing the first leg 3-2 at the Olimpico, Napoli defeated Roma 3-0 in the second leg at the San Paolo on goals from Callejon, Higuain, and Jorginho. Fiorentina's run to the final was much easier. They beat Kevo Verona in the round of 16, who were a bottom table team. Then in the quarterfinals, they beat Siena, who were in Serie B at the time. And in the semifinals, they beat Udinese, who were another bottom table team. Moving on to the match, Rafa Benitez, who was in the first of two years in charge at Napoli, lined up his men in a 4-2-3-1 formation with Pepe Reina in goal. The backline consisted of Fauzi Gulam at left-back, Raul Albiol and Federico Fernandez at centre-back, and Brazilian Enrique at right-back. In the midfield, he had Jorginho and Gohan Inler, and in front of them in the trequartista role was Marek Hamsik. Lorenzo Insigne played the left wing and Jose Caleon played right wing, which is really amazing when you consider that six years later, those two are still in the starting winger positions, though it looks like that's finally going to change with Caleon on his way out this year. Finally, the striker was Gonzalo Higuain. And look, I know Higuain betrayed us when he left Napoli for Juventus, but for the three years that he was with Napoli, he was absolutely deadly, including, of course, setting the Serie A goal-scoring record in the 2015-2016 campaign, which Immobile is trying to break this year. And this is not going to be a popular opinion amongst Napoli tifosi, but I'm of the opinion that athletes are free to switch clubs. That's not illegal. They have no moral obligation to stay at a club, and that's why contracts have end dates. Now, I know he didn't handle the situation well, not giving Napoli an opportunity to negotiate, but the reality is... If you want to win Scudetti, and if you want to play in the Champions League, or at least improve your chances of winning the Champions League, because I know what people are going to say about that, then Juventus really gives you the best chance to do that. Does that mean I love Higuain? No. Do I put him in the same category as players like Cavani and Hamsik and Mertens? No. Especially when you consider how he handled himself when he returned to the San Paolo as an opponent. But at the end of the day, for me, none of that changes what he did for Napoli when he was here. Moving on to Fiorentina's lineup, Vincenzo Montella's side lined up in a 4-3-1-2 formation with Neto in goal. The back line was Manuel Pascual, Gonzalo Rodriguez, Stefan Savic, and Nenad Tomovic. In the midfield was Alberto Aquilani, David Pizarro, and Juan Vargas. Now, Vargas on paper was the right midfielder, but he was really all over the pitch in this match. In the trequartista spot was Borja Valero, and the attacking duo was Yaquin and Josep Ilicic. Now, Ilicic, this was his first season with Fiorentina after joining in the summer from Palermo, and he was just as good back then as he is now, though you might say he was less consistent back then. And his current strike partner at Atalanta, Duvan Zapata, was actually sitting on Napoli's bench for this match. Giuseppe Rossi was also on the bench for Fiorentina after missing all of the previous Coppa Italia matches and the previous eight Serie A matches with a cruciate ligament injury, and he would actually miss the next nine Serie A matches as well after he came into this match off of the bench. Juan Cuadrado was also notably not in the squad. And the last thing I'll say about this stacked Fiorentina squad is they owned a number of talented young players who were playing elsewhere, which included a 22-year-old Marcos Alonso, who was on loan to Sunderland, a 21-year-old Matias Vecino, who was on loan to Genoa, a 19-year-old Federico Bernardeschi, who was on loan to Crotone, a 19-year-old Antti Rebic, on loan to Hellas Verona, and a 20-year-old Kuma Babakar, who was on loan at Modena. 
Now, there was a bit of drama even before the match started. The start of the match was delayed by nearly 45 minutes, and in fact, the match was almost cancelled because of an incident outside of the stadium. So this match was played at the Stadio Olimpico in Roma, and there was an altercation between some Napoli fans and a lone Roma Ultra. And apparently the Ultra threw smoke bombs at a small group of Napoli fans, and when they retaliated, he pulled out a gun and opened fire, sending one of those Napoli supporters to the hospital. And then when word of the shooting got to the stadium, Napoli Ultras got into altercations with the police. So to resolve the matter, a meeting was called inside the Olimpico, including representatives from both Napoli and Fiorentina's ultra groups. And apparently the league asked Marek Hamsik to talk to the head of Napoli's ultra group to dispel the rumor that a Napoli supporter had been killed in the shooting. And only after that meeting was this game permitted to resume. So let's talk about the actual game now. Napoli started the match very positively, and it would only take 10 minutes for Lorenzo Insigne to find the back of the goal. C'è più campo adesso per la controgiocata del Napoli. Prova a bucare al centro Amsic. Amsic, Corridoio per Insigne che va di prima. Insigne a rete per il vantaggio del Napoli. Napoli 1, Fiorentina 0. All'undicesimo minuto in questa finale della Coppa Italia. Il destro a giro di Insigne, palo interno e gol. So this play started with a Jorginho interception in Napoli's half. Hamsik would collect the ball, still in his own half, and carry straight up the middle of the pitch, which was wide open for some reason, before playing a perfectly weighted ball through for Insigne. Insigne would need only one touch to find the back of the goal, curling the ball around an outstretched netto and inside the far post to open the scoring. And then only a few minutes later, Iguain would miss a glorious opportunity from close range, but a few minutes after that, in the 16th minute, Napoli would double their lead. Sbaglia Vargas nel retro passaggio. Allora Iguain, Iguain che va per il esterne rispetto a Savic. Iguain cerca l'assist per Amsic, sta arrivando Insigne, ancora lui sinistro, deviazione per la Insigne, ancora lui raddoppia. Passati 16 minuti, primo tempo, Napoli 2, Fiorentina 0. Il contropiede del Napoli micidiale. Non è stato in questo caso un recupero palla, ma una servizio. This goal started with an errant pass from Juan Vargas that would actually spring Gonzalo Iguain the other way. Iguain would cut outside toward the wing to lose Savage. He would then play a square ball across the box, which was just behind the charging Hamsik, but sat for Lorenzo Insigne who joined the attack. Insigne's strike would take a deflection off of Tomovic and beat a helpless Neto to make the score 2-0. Fiorentina would pull one back in the 27th minute on a goal that appeared to come out of nothing. Rodriguez would play a long ball forward from his own half. Ilicic would play a clever back heel flick over the top. And Vargas had timed his run perfectly. He would smash a volley off the bounce to beat Pepe Reina and cut the lead in half to 2-1. Fiorentina took control of the match in the second half, applying pressure to try to level the scoreline, but Napoli defended well. Things got worse for Napoli in the 78th minute when Inler was shown a second yellow after a careless tackle on Josip Ilicic. In the 84th minute, Ilicic missed a wide open opportunity, but his shot would spin wide of the far post. Then in added time, Napoli would put the game away. Un rimpallo favorisce la giocata del Napoli Mertens, Mertens!
Napoli 3, Fiorentina 1. Tutta la panchina del Napoli è entrata in campo, tranne Bigon, che è rimasto seduto impassibile in panchina. This play started with a Calihon throwing in Fiorentina's half. After a few fortunate bounces, the ball would fall for Calihon, who would find an unmarked Mertens in the area, and Mertens would find the back of the goal. And that's how this match would end, with Napoli winning its fifth Coppa Italia in club history. Since then, unfortunately, Napoli have failed to win another cup. At this stage in the season, the Coppa Italia was all Napoli had to play for. In Serie A, the Azzurri were 16 points behind Roma and 24 points behind Juventus, who put up a ridiculous 102 points when all was said and done. Napoli were also 8 points clear of Fiorentina in 4th place, so they only needed 1 point in the next 3 matches to qualify for the Champions League, and they won all 3. Gonzalo Higuain, in his first season with the club, finished 4th in the race for Capocannoniere, 5 goals back of Luca Toni, who scored 22. Giuseppe Rossi was on pace to win that award had he not suffered that ligament injury. Even though he missed 17 matches, he still finished in 6th spot, only 1 goal back of Higuain. So that's going to do it for episode 6. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give it a 5 star rating. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to focus on anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5 or at ForzaNapoliPod. You can also find my work at WorldFootballIndex.com. I had a blast putting this one together and I can't wait to work on the next one. So until next time, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Sempre. Website for details.